last night at about 10 o'clock, as I walked down Main Street, I was shocked by how many people there were facing in one direction. And then I heard from somebody that they were going to cancel the fireworks show. Did you hear that? Yeah, that turned out not to be true. But hey, I thought all these people sitting here waiting for this fireworks show, and it might not even happen, but it did happen, and everybody saw it, and we stopped, and my group was kind of trying to walk out. We had a lot of people with us, and Donnie was with us, and this lady with one of those flashlights that's trying to tell everyone where to go got very upset with Donnie. He's like, no, get inside the ropes, and he made him like go underneath the ropes, and we were all squished in like sardines, but then everything happened, right? Like the fireworks, and all of the music, and all that stuff, and then when I thought it was over, and the, the ropes kind of were coming up, and we're like, all right, let's get out of here. Let's beat the crowd. Then all of a sudden, the lights turn blue. You might remember this part. The lights turn blue, and all of a sudden, a bunch of soap got uh, sprayed everywhere, and the, and the snow came down, right? Remember that last night? The snow came down everywhere, and it was like, whoa, this is exciting. But as I walked through the comment, I was walking next to Drew, the comment I made to him was like, dude, look at all these people. Look at them. They're taking their phones. They're looking up at this soap. I'm like, come on. This is just soap. Like, what are we doing, guys? You're adults, okay? And as I was doing that, there was this little girl that walked right next to me and was like, oh, I want to catch some. And immediately, I turned into dad mode. I'm like, no, go get it. Go get it. And I'm like, that is so funny. One minute, I'm just like, oh, this is so dumb. And the next minute, this girl walked by. I'm like, oh, this is so cool, right? And I was genuinely excited for her because she was super excited and she was looking up and it was amazing, right? All these people are all excited and tranced by what was going on and it's good. I mean, it was kind of a cool situation that was happening. And it made me think as I was walking down Main Street before, I heard all this Christmas music going on and there were old Christmas carols and songs that maybe we sing in church. Some of them we just sang. I heard Hark the Herald Angels sing, the, the tune at least, when we were walking down Main Street. And I thought, how funny it is that we all stop and we watch this show about Christmas, but all these people are walking around and they're hearing songs about how God was made flesh, yet they probably don't even recognize how important that is. That all of us stop and watch something that's spectacular and amazing while maybe missing what Christmas is all about. And for many of you, if I say, hey, do you know what Christmas is about? You're like, yeah, it's about Jesus. It's about how he was born. It was about you know, Joseph and, and Mary, and, and Mary was a virgin, and it's just this birth was miraculous. You might start to tell me stuff like that, and all that is true. But I want to challenge you this morning that you may hear the Christmas story so many times, and maybe you could tell me the facts about it, that you are not as amazed as that little girl was at the snow falling down. If you are so familiar with what's going on here, you might miss how amazing what actually happened was. So I want to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. As we've been looking at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we've actually only covered one chapter so far this year in the Sermon on the Mount. But before we do that, Matthew actually tells us who Jesus is, and I want to look at what he writes about the birth of Jesus and all the events surrounding it. We could look at a bunch of different Gospels. Um, it's in the Gospel of Luke as well. Maybe the most detailed account is in the Gospel of Luke. But this Christmas, we're going to study what Matthew has to say about Jesus' birth because we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. I thought that would be appropriate for us to see how does Matthew tell us who Jesus is. He starts in Matthew 1.1 saying, This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And what he's about to do is he has this big genealogy where he, well, that's just a, a list of names. It's a family tree, basically, where he says, this is who Jesus's, you know, father figure was and his father and his father and his father. And it goes all the way up, starting from Abraham all the way down to this guy named Joseph. But it's interesting. It goes down to Joseph. But if you know the story, Joseph is only kind of Jesus's dad, Right? You know how this story is going to unfold. He's his legal father, but he's actually not his biological father. So he sets this up by saying Jesus is the son of David. And that should remind you of the Old Testament, that God promised to David that he was going to bring from David a ruler who was going to rule forever. Someone who was always going to sit on David's throne. You might hear language about David's throne. That's because God made a promise. And he said, someone's going to come. Someone is going to be born from David's line, to rule. You could even go back further to Abraham, where God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, in you, every family and every nation of the world will be blessed. How did that happen? Well, through this promise of a seed, someone who is gonna come from their line. You could go back even further to Genesis chapter three, where at the beginning, God promises that when sin happened, he is gonna fix the problem. And how is he gonna fix the problem? He says, through the seed of a woman, of the woman, Eve. There's a descendant that's gonna come from Eve. It's even interesting how he says a seed from the woman because if you know how you know, the language works and you know how that all works, the seed actually comes from the man. And he says, no, from the seed of the woman, God is going to crush Satan's head. I say all that because it takes us back to the beginning. Even in, Gen- in Matthew 1.1, that word genealogy is the same word that we see in verse 18 when it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Birth, genealogy, same word. It's the word that we actually get the word Genesis from, that we, we call the first book of the Bible Genesis, because it's the book of genealogies. It tells Israel where they came from. And this here is where Jesus came from. And Matthew wants to show us. So start in verse 18 with us. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. If you lived at that time and you found out there was a girl that was betrothed who was pregnant, what happened? Right? Investigator, what do you think happened? Well, she's either been with this Joseph guy who she's not supposed to be with yet because you know, they're not together yet, or she's been with somebody else and she's pregnant. That's what this looked like from the outset. You know, when we talk about how Jesus came to this earth, sometimes we just, we say it so nonchalantly. We've heard it a million times. Maybe just like you've seen the light show at Disneyland a million times. So it's not that amazing anymore. But if you entered this story, if you were a teenager at the time that this was going on in Israel, interacting with people like Joseph and Mary, this would blow your mind. And many of you, you wouldn't even be able to believe that God was doing something amazing like he says here. I want us to write that down for the first point. I just want you to be shocked by the story of Joseph and Mary. Be shocked by their story. just want to read this story. I want to explain it a little bit. It's going to take some time to kind of explain all these parts. That's why it's just the first point. We're just going to read through it. I just want you to be shocked. I want you to experience it the way that you would have experienced it if you didn't hear it before, if this wasn't just stories that you've heard before. So, Mary and Joseph are betrothed. What does that mean? Well, in the ancient day, 
in Israel, how they set up marriages was they didn't go and find the person they wanted to get married. They didn't date. They didn't do that kind of thing. They had parents who said, all right, your family, our family, we're going to get together. Your son, my daughter, this is how it's going to work. They were arranged marriages at this point. So you've got Joseph's parents involved, Mary's parents involved. We don't know much about them, but we just do know that they're betrothed. Okay? Sometimes people say it's like being engaged. It's not like being engaged. Being engaged, when, when you, you know, date somebody and then you get engaged, all you do is give them a ring and a general proposal that you are going to marry them one day. But in our culture, the way marriage works is in one step. So like the day before your wedding, you are as single as you've ever been. The day after your wedding, in our culture, you are as married as you possibly can be. That's not how it worked for them back then because family were, were involved and money was exchanged and dowries were given. If you know what that means, it's, it's where one side has to pay the other side some money to say, hey, I, I, I'm promising we're going to be in this together. So Mary and Joseph are betrothed. If you close your eyes and you imagine Mary and Joseph right, having this kid, what do they look like in your mind? How old do they look? What do you think of them? What do you think of their character? Like, because they're Bible characters, right? Because you don't have kids, you probably think, man, they're like I, I, Joseph's 25, 26, Mary's, you know, probably 21, 22 if she's not married yet. Like, that's Joseph and Mary. Can I tell you, that's not what Joseph and Mary look like. In this culture, girls were betrothed, which was the final step before marriage. Girls were betrothed at about age 12 or 13. Right? So if you study what the Jews do, like even bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, when do those take place? Right? That 12, 13 range. Right? If you have a Jewish friend and you've been to a bar mitzvah for him or whatever, or a bat mitzvah for her, it happens when they're young. The coming of age as an adult was very young back then, which by the way, it's interesting to think, the, the invention of the teenager not working but going to school is a super, super modern invention. Like that has never been the case in history until very, very recently that you have teenagers, so post-puberty people who are not in their careers yet, or at least training for their careers. That's, that's super rare. We live in a weird time in history where, you know, you, you can be 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and still don't know what you're gonna do in life, right? Which is fine. That's where we live. That's, that's okay. But back then, it was more decided for you based on your parents, based on all these things. So 12, 13-year-old person, girl, is betrothed. So Mary's parents, they have it all set up. This is how they all did it, right? Mary is betrothed, let's say at age 12 and a half. Let's say she's betrothed at 13, okay? How old is a 13-year-old, ladies? Okay, 13-year-old is an eighth grader, okay? Maybe some of you when you were in seventh grade. That's Mary. Mary's not 25. Mary's not a mother of four, right? Mary doesn't look like Alexandra, right? Mary looks like an eighth grader. Like, picture an eighth grader. Can you think of any eighth grade girls that you know? That's Mary. That's what you need to think of, okay? This should change the way you read this story. You should be shocked by this story. It's not how we tend to think of these things. And men, right, when, when do they get married? Well, they were betrothed a little later because they would start usually apprenticeships, they would train in their craft, again, at age 12 or 13, they'd work on that for a couple of years so that they could establish their own thing and then take a wife at 16, 17, 18. So they're not, you know, 27 most of the time in Jewish culture, right? You've got an eighth grader and an 11th grader, not to freak you out, okay? But that's basically what you have going on, okay? Mary's in eighth grade. Joseph is in 11th grade. Have you ever thought of the story in this way, right? 
and Mary's pregnant, right? That, that's the real, you know, bad thing, which it's, of course, right? She's 13, she's 14 at this point. Maybe she's an eighth grader, ninth grader, somewhere in that range. Um, you know, obviously, physically, she can get pregnant, but the fact that she's pregnant is a scandal, though, right? It might even be more scandalous now if an eighth grader or ninth grader got pregnant, but it was scandalous back then, too, right? She's pregnant. Verse 19, look what it says. And her husband Joseph, which is interesting that she's called her husband, because betrothal meant more than just engaged. They were as married as you could be without the final step of coming and living together and having you know, sexual relations. They're the one step before that, okay? So they're, they're bound together by oath, but they're just not living together yet. But he was a just man, which means righteous. That word righteousness that... That Jesus says, you need to have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees. That's this word. Joseph had a righteousness that was deeper than the scribes and Pharisees. He wasn't a hypocrite. He wasn't just a, you know, show it off at church, but live his own life. This guy was, tra- like, this guy was a solid guy. He was tracking. He was good. He wanted to do what God wanted him to do. Not a perfect guy, obviously. Not sinless, but he was, he was doing what God wanted him to do. He was unwilling to put her to shame. Because again, your, your fiancé or, or your betrothed person right, gets pregnant. How do you feel if you're Joseph? Have you ever thought about this? How must have Joseph have felt? The girl he wants to marry, the one that he's made promises to, money has been exchanged, right? This is about to be really embarrassing because what does he know? He knows it's not mine. Right? Even today, uh, Orthodox Jewish culture, what they do is a lot of people do not even touch for the first time until their wedding ceremony. By touch, I mean like touch their hand or give a hug. Like it was very strict in the Jewish culture. And the only helpful reason for us to speak of that now is it's very clear this is not Joseph's child, right? And he's a just man. He's righteous. So you know what a righteous person is not gonna do? A righteous person is not gonna marry a girl who's been sleeping around. He's not gonna do that. Right? So that's the thing we miss in this. We think, oh, Joseph, he must be a bad guy. He just wants to get out of this. No, Joseph's doing the right thing. Joseph should not get married to her at this point because if it's not his kid, do you know what he signals to the world if he gets married to her? That's my kid. I've been immoral too. He can't do that. He's a just man. And what does the law say? Deuteronomy 22 says, if you're in this betrothal period and you find out the person that you're with is unfaithful, you have every right. In fact, that text says you could even have it be legally pursued so that the guy can get in trouble, the girl can get in trouble, and there can be justice. And, and he says, look, I could do that, but I'm unwilling to put her to shame. I think highly of her. I don't want to do that. So I'm going to do the right thing, but I'm going to do it in a very merciful way. He doesn't take it to the full extent that he could. He could shame Mary. He, he, he could be so out of his heartbreak, go put Mary on display and say, Look at this horrible person here. Look at this. You know, she's been sleeping around. He could have done that out of his heartbreak. He doesn't. Why? He's a just man. He's righteous. He's merciful. He resolved to divorce her quietly. So he said, what we're going to do, and again, back then, you didn't have to go through a big legal proceeding. What did, we just read this in Matthew 5. You can sign a certificate of divorce and send them away, right? All they have to do is sign a paper and you're done. And marriage is over. And that's what was going to happen. Notice where it says he resolved to do it. He made up his mind. He's going to do it. He's going to do it quietly. But, verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord 
appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. If you were called son of David, do you know what this angel is reminding Joseph of? Remind of who you are. Do you remember the promises? Remember what you read in the Old Testament? You've heard, because you come from the house of David. You're a son of David. This promise can apply to you. And Joseph, you are a son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And there's a lot of fear that he could have had taking Mary as his wife. It's not his kid. What is it? What are people going to think? Are they gonna, they're probably going to think it's my kid. They're probably going to think I'm lying. So he says, take the hits on your reputation. Be willing to be lied about. Take Mary, marry her, finish, finish the deed, right? You're betrothed, but like come together, do everything as normal, right? Don't fear to take her as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay? So this is a unique birth. No one in all of history has been born like Jesus is born. What that means is, Jesus does not have an earthly biological father. So God, in a miracle, conceives Jesus, specifically if we're talking about God, the Father, Son, Spirit. This keeps saying it's the Holy Spirit. So we have to say, okay, I, the scriptures tell us, I guess this is a work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, to say, wow, we are going to create a miracle in Mary. Now we got half of, you know, with Jesus' genes, half of them are Mary's. The other half, the other set of chromosomes, right? I don't know, but God made a miracle. Just like I don't know how God made Adam in the garden other than he made him from the dirt. Well, how did he make him from the dirt? I couldn't tell you all the ways that he did it, but the text says he did it. So we say he must have done it that way. Same thing here with the virgin conception, which I say conception because the miracle is not that a virgin bears a son. The miracle is that the virgin conceives a son. There's a difference there. The incarnation, when Jesus took on flesh, it did not happen in December. It did not happen when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The incarnation, it happened in March or April when Jesus, who is God, comes down and lives as an embryo for nine months, developing heartbeat, limbs, legs, hands, feet, cardiovascular system, growing, that's when the incarnation happened. Not at the birth, but at the conception. He says, don't be afraid. This baby's from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. and You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus means God saves. So he says, call him that. Who's going to call him that? Mary? Nope. Joseph. Joseph. The father, who's not the father. But back then, fathers had the responsibility of naming the child, publicly proclaiming, this is my child, this is his name. And they did that traditionally on the eighth day when the baby was circumcised in the temple. That's when they did it, right? And we see that in Luke chapter one. We see how it all, or Luke chapter two, how it all worked out for Jesus. And Joseph did exactly what he says here. All this took place. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Notice, even in Isaiah 7, 14, what's the miracle? The miracle is not the birth. It's just, it's a girl giving birth. That's, that's, I mean, it's cool. It's a miracle in a you know, small M miracle sense, but it's not like a miraculous miracle. What's the miraculous miracle? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a title given in the Old Testament for this person who's gonna come into the world and be God with us. 
Verse 24, and when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took his wife, which means they got married. Another weird thing. Do you envision Joseph and Mary as married when they go to Bethlehem? You should. They are married. The, the, they, he took her. They are now living together, right? They're now together. They are a couple. They're married as married people can be at this point, except for this part, verse 25. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. To know someone in the Bible sense is to have sex with them. So he's not had sex with his wife, which is also kind of interesting, right? They get married, they're living together, but there's no sex going on. Why is that, right? Is that because God says it's not okay? No, it's because this baby needs to be so clearly marked as not Joseph's that nobody can question whether or not this is Joseph's. They don't even come together until after Mary's showing. This is actually probably months after Mary was actually pregnant because in Luke 1, the, the, the angel says first to Mary, you are going to conceive, then it happens, then she goes to her cousin's house for three months and she's likely back in Nazareth. So Joseph is finding out second. He found actually not out from an angel that she's pregnant, he found out from just finding out. And how did he find out? I don't know, people started talking, a family member, a gossip, somebody, right? maybe Mary came and told him. doesn't say. The point is, once he heard from God what to do, he did it. And then she gave birth to a son, and he, Joseph, called him Jesus, doing exactly what he was told to do. Now, if you were living at this time in this place, this would shock you, and you likely would not believe it. That's part of the point of this story, is it's so amazing, it's so unique, that you naturally, scientific-minded person, skeptical person, right? you probably wouldn't believe this, but this is exactly how God did it. He did it through the virgin conception. That's the second point. Be convinced of the necessity of the virgin conception. Okay? What I want to do now, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going from the story to thinking about what does this mean? that Jesus was conceived by a virgin? What are the implications of this? Why did this have to happen? What I'm having you write down is, be convinced that it's necessary, that Jesus had to have come this way. He had to have been born of a virgin, conceived of a virgin. It had to have taken place this way. It couldn't have happened any other way. Now, I want you to stop and think, okay, if I come to this text so critically to say, nope, impossible, couldn't have happened, this is impossible. You're right, physically is impossible. Just like the world being created is impossible scientifically. Right? Just like Jesus turning water into wine is impossible scientifically. It, it can't happen through natural processes. Oh, but it can happen with supernatural processes. That can happen here too. You need to be convinced that this had to have taken place. Um, yeah, and, and I, I already said this, but I want you to see the real miracle was not that he was born from a virgin, but that he was conceived from a virgin, which is also interesting if you think about um, when this all took place, and the fact that we say, yeah, it's amazing that Jesus was a baby in a manger, and that is amazing. It's amazing that God would ever be that. But I think, personally, it's even more amazing that Jesus was an embryo in an eighth grader's womb, right? That's a, that's a scary sentence to even say. It sounds wrong to say, doesn't it, right? But that's what God came down to earth as, that's, that's who he was. It really was him. That's really God in the womb of a young girl. Like that is, that is amazing. That is shocking. If you're not shocked by that, you're not thinking about that properly. 
if you've ever heard of modernist Christians or um, sometimes called uh, Christian liberalism or otherwise called the modern form of this is progressive Christianity. Any form of Christianity that, that basically denies the supernatural. So the natural is you fall down, you scrape your knee, your knee heals over time. Right? They're scabbing the blood clots, it scabs, it, and it heals, the skin grows back over. God healed you, right? Yeah, he did. But how did he do it? Naturally, right? Through your natural biological processes that we could study, observe, measure, right? That's how he did it. There are other times where God acts supernaturally that he doesn't use his natural means. If you scraped your knee, right, and it was all, you know, bloody or whatever, and then immediately, like, someone touched it, and then boom, skin, like, formed over it again immediately. We'd say, well, that's not natural. That's not the way God naturally, normally does it. That's supernatural. People who claim to be Christians for a long time have been denying that this ever took place. They deny that the virgin conception ever happened. They say, no, like, that is just a myth that Christians made up to try to make Jesus sound more cool than he actually is, to make him sound more different than us. Here's why I want you to study and think about the necessity of this. If Jesus was not conceived of a virgin, how was he conceived? Think about it. How was he conceived then? Right? Well, his mother and father, that's how we're all conceived. Who's the father? Right? Joseph? Oh, okay. Well, then, Joseph is not a just man. Joseph was a liar. Joseph uh, got a girl pregnant that he was betrothed to. Jesus was born in a lot of sin, like a lot of sin, and this was all a lie. Is that Jesus? Is that your Savior? Is that the God-man? Oh, wow. See, you can't really believe that Jesus is the God-man and think of this any other way. Oh, let's say it wasn't Joseph. Who was it then? What creep was it that raped Mary, right? What relative was it? You start, if it's not this way, Jesus cannot be who he said he was if it didn't happen this way. Do you realize that? Like, maybe you haven't thought through the logical implications of the alternatives, right? That's what I'm just presenting to you. The logical implications of the alternatives. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, if he was not conceived in Mary's womb. Yeah, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, this was one of the doctrines that people loved to dismiss. They said, oh, well, we're a Christian. We follow the spirit of Christ, but we don't believe in all the miracles. We don't believe in all that virgin birth stuff. It's like, okay, if you don't believe in the virgin birth, who was Jesus? How did he get here? One commentator I was reading this week said, once you take away the virgin birth, you have cast Jesus into such a despicable light. How could you say that you believe that he's your savior? You can't believe that. He's born in utter sin. One way or another, the product of sin in one way or another, can't be. Also, theologically, um, if Jesus was born like everybody else, he would have been born with original sin, in a similar way that you are with the propensity to sin that the scriptures say he wasn't born with original sin. He wasn't born as a sinner. He was born, as Galatians 4 said, under the curse in the sense that he was born a body like ours, but he did not carry with him Adam's sin. Romans 5 says that all of us, when we're born, we carry with us Adam's sin, which means when Adam sinned, we sinned. We're guilty before we ever do anything wrong. What about Jesus? He's the only person that was born not guilty. You and I are born guilty. Jesus not born guilty. Why? Well, because he didn't come the way that you came. He didn't, he wasn't born and conceived the way that you were born. 
You've got a sinful father. You've got a sinful mother. Right? Jesus did not have a sinful father. Right? She did have a sinful mother. She was righteous more than other people. But yeah, didn't have a sinful father. Didn't come to earth that way. Galatians 4.4 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of lifelong slavery, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What does that mean? It means Jesus took on flesh like you and me. He came in a, in a unique way to earth. But he took on flesh. That's what the incarnation is. That word, if you were in main service this morning, if you were brave enough to be at the 9 o'clock this morning, you learned about the incarnation, which means God and man in one person, Jesus. Right? That's another supernatural miracle. It's the incarnation. Point number three, I'd love for you to write this down. I want you to be amazed by the theology of the incarnation. That's one of the things we learned very clearly here. Jesus is born of a different substance. He's just, he's different, right? But... He's like us. Was he really human? He was really, really human. His cells were really, really human. But, but he was different because he's divine as well. The guy who wrote the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, was named Charles Wesley. His brother was a really famous pastor named Charles Wesley in the 1700s. Charles Wesley wrote a lot of hymns, some of that you know. And Can It Be, he wrote that hymn. He also wrote another hymn that's lesser known about Christmas time. It's a song called, They Shall Call His Name Emmanuel. He wrote this in 1745. And I say this because he adds an interesting line in there that kind of describes for us who this Jesus is. He does it in a poetic way. He says, let earth and heaven combine. Angels and men agree to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Right. Sounds like Hark the, Herald, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But then here's what he says. Our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. A span, if you know your Bible, is, a, is the span of your hand. It's like, you know, eight or nine inches, right? That's how long that your hand is. It was a measurement used in the ancient world. And here's what Charles Wesley is saying. It's like the infinite, long, wide, it's like it's contracted into a little hand, a span, short, condensed. Like it's, incomprehensible, incomprehensibly made man. Here's what else the scriptures say about this. Some verses for you to write down. John 1, 14. We read this this morning. But it said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 2, 9, another verse for you to write down. It says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Here's why those verses are important. Because the amazing thing to you should not be the virgin conception. That's not the biggest miracle that happens. The biggest miracle is that God would condense down to a span. That's the bigger miracle. Like, if God can condense down to a span, well, then how would he be born? You'd expect something like the virgin birth. Like, that shouldn't shock you, although if you were experienced in the story, that would be the first thing to shock you. But as we look back, theologically, the thing that should shock you is that God would ever become a man like you. He would ever become human like all of us. John 1, 3 says, 
all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Philippians 2 says about him that though Jesus, him, he was, for, he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself. And being found in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The impressive thing is that he emptied himself. The impressive thing is that he came down as a human being like you. That's the impressive thing. He's the creator. He's the one who made everything, yet became human. Got sick. Stubbed his toe. Broke his fingers, most likely. You realize he grew up in the home of a carpenter who lived in an area with no trees. Have you ever heard about this? But Nazareth doesn't really have any trees around. You know what it has around? Quarries. The word that we translate carpenter means a mason. So we always assume, oh, it's like a, a mason of wood, right? Because, you know, in, in northern European settings, the masons were masons of wood. But in northern Israel, the masons were stone masons, cutting rocks. Probably a, a play on words that Jesus uses when he calls Peter the rock. Probably another play on words when he's called the solid rock, when he's called the cornerstone, a guy who cut out of rock stone. So if you want to talk about Jesus, that's the kind of job he had as a teenager when he was your age. He wasn't sitting in classrooms. He was cutting rock with chisels and lifting them up into carts and driving them places and breaking his fingers and working with his hands. That was Jesus but living righteously, his heart in it with God perfectly. A more manly man than any of you high schoolers in the room right now was Jesus. That was just the nature of being a teenager at his time. That's the impressive part, that he would empty himself. Now, this was not the spur of the moment decision by God to say, okay, this is what we're gonna do. If you know your Bible and you even read our, our passage today, what does it say? Look at verse 22 of our passage. It said, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Interesting that as Matthew writes this, who spoke? Whose word was this that he's fulfilling? Is it Isaiah's word? Is it the prophet's word? Yeah, it says that. No, it doesn't say that. Look what it says. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophets. Who does Matthew think wrote the Bible? Right? He knows the prophets wrote the Bible, but what is he teaching you about the Bible? The Bible is from God. Again, for anybody who's like, yeah, that's a modern invention that we believe that the Bible is the word of God, that's ridiculous. Even here, Matthew says, no, the prophet spoke from God. Look what the prophet spoke. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, right? So all of these things came as a fulfillment of prophecy. So point number four, I'd love for you to write this down. I want you to be thankful for prophecy and fulfillment, right? Prophecy is when it's promised. Fulfillment is when it happens. Both are from God because God knows everything. God sometimes tells people what he's going to do. In Isaiah, he says, I declare the end from the beginning. I tell people things that haven't happened yet, and then I bring them to pass. So God's not just the promiser and says, I think I know how it's all going to work out. He's the promiser, and he's the executor of his plan. He does both of those things. I want you to be thankful for that, because as you consider who Jesus is, he is not just some rabbi who came along the scene, had some impressive ideas, and then was killed by the Romans. It's not who he was. He was God who was promised to come to earth even from 700 years before it happened. Can you name one person that was alive 700 years ago? You would have trouble naming people that were alive in the 1300s. Isaiah, 
was writing from God 700 years before Jesus was born. And you can be thankful because you know what you can know? Isaiah was written before the Gospel of Matthew. You can know that for certain. You can see that in archaeology through things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, where you've got groups of scrolls that are dated to like 200 B.C., clearly written before the time of Jesus. But guess what Isaiah says there? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Right? Written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And so it happens, exactly as promised. And that passage is very interesting. We're going to look at it on Wednesday night in small groups. You're going to turn to Isaiah 7. You're going to read a little bit of the context that's in one of the application questions on the back. But what you're going to see is in that text, God is making a promise to the house of David, to a king named Ahaz, who is not a good guy. And he says to him, I'm going to show you a sign. I'm going to do something amazing. There's going to be a virgin that will conceive. An impossibility. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. The next chapter, there's a young woman, not a virgin, but a young woman who is born, who has a child, which is like a sign, but not a miraculous sign, to that house. is the longest name in the Bible. Mershal Hashbaz. It's one big, long word. It's got a lot of hyphens in it. He's born in Isaiah 8. He's the son of Isaiah and Isaiah's wife. And when he comes on the scene, he acts like a sign to, to King Ahaz, the, the evil king, that God is going to destroy the enemies that King Ahaz is afraid of. Okay. But in that promise, it's like he makes this big, big promise. And then he gives him a little foretaste of the answer in the next chapter. And you're like, well, maybe that's just the promise and fulfillment. Maybe you missed the point. Maybe Matthew missed the point. Maybe you're a skeptic here today. Okay, great. Well, here's what I don't think we missed. In Isaiah 9... Right after that other baby's born, you start getting these promises about a light coming to Naphtali, a light coming to the, the way by the sea. Those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It says, you shall bear a son. We're going to call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So I guess Isaiah 8, I guess that's not the ultimate fulfillment of this. That's why we can take that and say, that's, this is talking about Jesus, even in Isaiah chapter 7. You know, if you're asking, did the prophets understand all this when they wrote? Do they know all? Like, if it was a surprise, would it have been surprising? I would have thought it. I, I think the story, as I told it at the beginning, I think you can admit, yeah, that would have been hard to believe. But then if you looked at the scriptures and saw what they said, and if you believed it, you'd be like, well, but God did say something like this was going to happen. I mean, he does promise some weird things, and even the prophets don't always understand what they wrote. You can write this verse down. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, those three verses, Peter writes about the prophets. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that is to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what persons or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were saying this to you, not to themselves, but to you. And in these things that have been now announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So if the virgin conception is hard to understand, and if it's hard to believe. And you think, did the prophets really think this? Peter says, yeah, they had an idea 
but they tried to figure it out. They couldn't quite figure it out. And some of this stuff, you want to talk about the incarnation, how God can be both man and God at the same time. That's something that angels long to look in. A lot of people have talked about this doctrine and said, this is not something that you should try to peer into and try to parse out and figure out all the intricacies. This is something you should step back and thank God for and just worship him for. The fact that God and man can be in one person, two natures. You could have a lot of questions about what that looks like, but all the questions are going to come back to, wow, I don't know how this works. Even the angels can't figure it out. But what they can figure out, and what the prophets knew, and what we know, is this is talking about Jesus. This is talking about Christ. Jesus fulfills these promises and these prophecies. I want you to go back to the story, back to verse 24. I want you to just think about this real quick. After all this is made clear to Joseph, it says something interesting. Verse 24 says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Okay, again, enter the story, think about it. You're Joseph's friend. Hey, I had a, a dream that, that Mary's not pregnant by some dude. It's by uh, the Holy Spirit. You'd be like, I think you're dreaming because you just like Mary. I think you just are assuming she's great. Like, this goes against maybe your better judgment, Joseph. Are you sure? Whatever counsel he got from his family or friends, I don't know if he got any bad counsel, right? The text doesn't say. I'm not trying to guess. I'm just saying, if you were his friend, you probably would be like, I don't know about this. But he was so sure that this came from God that he did exactly what he was told. His obedience is quick. In Luke 1, it's very similar. When Mary finds out that she's going to be pregnant, she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Okay, let it happen. Whatever you're going to do, God, figure it out. Do this. Both Mary and Joseph. Mary in the book of Luke. Joseph here in the book of Matthew, they display a very unique, quick obedience to God. Right? Like not everybody who hears God's word is quick to obey. Actually, most people in the gospel of Matthew don't obey right away. Like the, the Sermon on the Mount is about people who don't obey right away. All the stuff to the disciples, do they obey right away? Like, no, they, they take a long time to do what God says. You know, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. Joseph does it. He says, I'll do whatever you want me to do, God, even if it costs me, even if people are going to look down on me for this, I will obey. I think that's another thing we can learn from this Christmas story. Point number five, I want you, as a teenager, just like teenage Joseph, just like teenage Mary, I want you to be eager to obey, like Joseph and Mary. Be eager to obey. I think I'm, I'm, I'm ready to do what God wants me to do. When it's clear to me what God wants me to do, I'm going to do it. When it's clear to me that I need to talk to this person about this thing, I'm going to do it. When it's clear that I need to obey my parents, I'm going to do it. When it's clear that I need to be a good student, I'm going to do it. When it's clear that I need to reconcile with people, I'm going to do it. That eagerness only comes from a certainty that God has spoken. That's why it's very important that you are certain that the Bible is God's word, because that's really what gave him the confidence to be like, I'm I'm doing this, because he was sure God spoke to him about this. I said half of the story that we don't hear here is in the gospel of Luke. So I want you to turn to Luke. I want you to see how Mary responded here. After saying, yeah, I'm God's servant. Look at Luke chapter one, starting in verse 46. Remember, this is the eighth grader, Mary. This is your 13, 14 year old Mary. She hears this. She's pregnant now at this point. She stays with Elizabeth, her cousin for three months and her 
cousin Elizabeth, right? When you hear cousin, you think like, oh, we're the same age, right? Elizabeth was an old lady. So this is, a, this is like a 13-year-old staying with, you know, aunt and uncle in Jerusalem. So this is not, you know, sometimes we read this like, oh, staying with your cousin. You think, oh, yeah, well, like, are their parents going to, you know, are they going to give you money for food? Or are they going to make, how does her mom cook? No, Elizabeth is an old lady at this point. And Mary is, is young. From your perspective, can we say she's, just, she's like a kid, right? She's in eighth grade. She's a kid. Look what Mary says when she understands all that's going on. The verses before talk about how when she told her cousin Elizabeth what was happening, it says that the baby inside of Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy. The baby named John, John the Baptist, right? Just to remind you that scripture is very, very clear that what is inside a mother's womb is a baby or a human or whatever words you want to use for full human being, that's what's inside, right? Because if not, you're going to be a heretic to say that Jesus was not fully human in his mother's womb. And then we got bigger problems, right, with the scriptures. But here, verse 46, look what Mary says. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Look what she says. She's like thinking about what God has done and says, I'm gonna bless God. Look what he's done. He looked at my humble estate. I'm a servant. I'm, again, right? How old is she? What does she look like? like? What did you look like when you were 13, right, ladies? Like, it's just, no offense if you're 13, right? You're, you're, but you're all past that now, right? But like, you remember, you remember pictures? Like if we, if we found pictures, we'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad I'm 16 now. I'm glad I'm 17 now, right? That's who Mary was. And God says, you're gonna be the one to bear the Messiah, to bear Jesus. He who's mighty has done great things for me. His name is holy. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You know what that includes? That includes you. Remember, who writes this song? Is this 57-year-old experienced hymn writer? No, this is pregnant Mary. For he who is mighty, he's done great things. His mercy is for those who fear him. You, me, all generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. All the doubters, all the people who didn't think God could do it, all the people who said that Mary was this or that, Mary says God's taking care of all of that. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. That's the response that Mary has here. When you think of all that God has done at Christmas, I hope it's not old news. I hope it's not something that you heard once and you're just done thinking about because you've mastered it and you've got it. Even this sermon, I hope that as you start to peer back into the Christmas story, you start to realize how big this is, how amazing God shows himself to be. What a great savior he shows himself to be. There's a verse in the middle of all this that we didn't cover that we're gonna cover next Wednesday night. It's verse 21 where God makes it very clear that Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. That's what Christmas is all about, that 
God came to earth to deal with your sin problem. So even if you feel like, hey, this is just like a big academic sermon about, you know, things like the virgin birth and the incarnation, and this has nothing to do with me, realize this has everything to do with you because the reason Christmas happened and the reason Jesus came was because you are a sinner that needs to be saved. You're a sinner that needs to repent of your sin. You need to stop running from what God has to say. You need to stop saying, I won't repent. I'm going to wait till I get caught. I'm going to wait till I'm old. I'm going to wait till whatever. The story of Christmas is that God has offered a solution to save us through Jesus. That's something we should be excited about. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you are the God who has remembered us. We recognize that only humble people can be saved, and we recognize that we are all naturally bent to be proud and to be arrogant and to think that we don't need what you are offering. I pray that all of us would stop in our tracks and that you would stop us using whatever means necessary to get us to recognize that you are the Lord and that you demand our whole life and that you have done what is necessary for us to be saved. I pray for all of us to have a higher view of what you did at Christmas time, for us not to stop and look like all the onlookers at the time and, and to scoff at what you did and to think that it was not good, think that it was some kind of bad plot of some evil people, but we want to stop and recognize that this was your eternal plan that you worked out in time and space. We're thankful that you used humble people. I'm even thankful that you used teenagers. So you can remind all of us that you have a lot for us to do, even if we're not turning 18 yet. You have plenty for us to do in this world. We pray that we would accomplish it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.